Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabiso Lohoku. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Uganda elections to go ahead, but with no mass rallies. Tanzanian schools to reopen. And UK government seems to rule out the removal of controversial statues. In economics news, the rapid uptake of renewable energy witness in Kenya over the last years now hangs in the balance. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. Tanzanian President John Makafuli has vowed to allow free and fair elections as he seeks a second term in October's general election. He told politicians to avoid insults and violence while campaigning as he announced the dissolution of parliament as required by the constitution. His critics, however, say he has stifled freedom of expression since he took office in 2015. Under his presidency, human rights bodies and journalists have been targeted, some for making fun of him. Despite focusing on the general election, a cloud of uncertainty hangs over Tanzania because of its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which Magafuli declared as finished. Human Rights Watch is calling for an investigation into the apparent summary execution and torture of fighters allied to the internationally recognized government in Tripoli. In its latest news release, the U.S.-based rights watchdog says it has seen evidence in videos posted on social media of these alleged crimes committed by forces loyal to the rogue General Khalifa Haftar when they were engaged in battles in the capital Tripoli last month. His forces have since pulled back after more than a year of attempting to take over the capital. In its latest findings, HRW cites videos and a photograph posted on Facebook showing men allegedly affiliated with the General Hafta hitting an individual in Tripoli's Ain Zara district. South Africa's Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 has advised that patients on ventilators may now receive a corticosteroid as part of their treatment plan. This comes as a new trial treatment from the UK called Recovery and contains dexamethasone, shows that the fatality rate of mechanically ventilated patients can be cut by a third. The number of deaths in South Africa now stands at 1,625 and an increase of 57 new fatalities. The total number of infections is 76,334. Noma Bulani reports. The Ministerial Advisory Committee had initially advised against the use of corticosteroids in the treatment of COVID-19 patients. With new evidence emerging from the recovery trial treatment, it's changed the recommendations. It advises that both ventilated patients and those requiring oxygen can be given specific dosages for 10 days as part of their treatment plan. 
The MAC has warned that this new advisory may be subject to change following an in-depth review of the trial's findings. Meanwhile, the recovery rate is remaining steady at around 55%, with more than 42,000 people having recovered from the viral infection. The state government responsible for Nigeria's Lagos City has suspended indefinitely the planned reopening of mosques and churches this weekend as a result of a rise in the number of coronavirus cases. The easing of restrictions is due to go ahead as planned in the rest of the country. Nigeria now has over 16,600 cases, almost half of them in Lagos State. The lockdown in Nigeria has been in effect since March, but two weeks ago, authorities announced plans to reopen religious buildings and hotels. Testing has increased to almost 100,000 samples, though the government has faced criticism for low levels of testing. Brazil has reported a record daily number of new coronavirus cases of nearly 30,000. The country is second only to the United States in the total number of infections. More than 40,000 people in Brazil have died of COVID-19. The BBC's Katy Watson reports. The infection rate is showing no signs of slowing. At this rate, Brazil is likely to register a million cases by the end of the week. The country is the new centre of the coronavirus pandemic, a crisis that's worsening by the day. With so little testing in Brazil, though, it's thought that the true number of infections is far higher than official figures suggest. But under pressure from the country's President Jair Bolsonaro, who's criticised quarantine measures as economically damaging, major cities are starting to open back up all before the countries believed to have even reached the peak. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. President John Magufuli has ordered schools at all levels to reopen on the 29th of June after they were closed for almost three months since March 2020. The decision makes Tanzania the first East African country to open all schools and social gatherings that were closed due to the outbreak of the novel coronavirus. The president made the announcement while addressing and dissolving the 11th parliament in Dodoma yesterday. President Magufuli says there was no need to keep schools closed because the infections have dropped drastically. Our reporter Gabriel Zakaria has more from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Earlier this month, June 1st, universities, colleges and Form 6 students resumed their studies as normal. Sports and tourism activities have resumed in Tanzania since the announcement of May issued by authority and a number of tourists have been witnessed landing at the northern circuit for tours purpose. In May 2020, President Magufuli ordered from six students to go back to school on June 1st and he directed the Ministry of Education to arrange a program that will prepare them for the examinations which were earlier planned to start on May 4th. He also announced the other social activities like wedding ceremonies to resume because the pandemic contact in the country has gone down, though precautions still need to be observed. Napenda nitumie nafasi hii kutangaza kwamba kuanzia tarehe 29 nafikiri itakuwa Jumatatu. Mwezi huu wa June to direct that from 29th June all schools should reopen and other social activities like wedding ceremonies that were banned should resume back to normal. Though I still want Tanzanians to take precautions as we are told by our medical experts. 
I would also like to pay my grateful to all the citizens of this country for supporting the government during the first phase of my leadership. And I congratulate them for hard working on different aspects of life. Some of Dar es Salaam residents who spoke with Channel Africa say Magufuli who nicknamed the bulldozer has proven his talks into works and they have witnessed him more countrywide. Katika hospitali tunashukuru Mungu kwa sababu kila he improved the health services compared to previous years. We used it to walk long distance to search for medical services. I really thank the government under the leadership of Magufuli because we have seen a lot he did in his first phase. And I know that in his second term, he will do much more than what he did in his first phase. As an ordinary Tanzanian, I do appreciate the efforts played by the fifth phase government under President Magufuli, our hero. Because what he promised during his campaign, he has delivered. It means he walks, he talks, not like other leaders we have experienced before. The problem we had in our area was shortage of water. Since he came into power, he finished the entire problem that existed for many years around our local. President Magufuli has assured the politicians that the October 2020 election will be free and fair to all political parties and won't be against misbehaving during campaigns and election time. Kuhusu uchaguzi, nyote mnafahamu. As you all know that, election is an important exercise in democracy growth, and this is a time when leaders weigh up themselves towards the members of the public who previously voted for them. I also know some of you will retire from politics and others are preparing for the next election. I wish you all good luck. We are prepared to run a free and fair election like other previous elections. I would like to assure all political parties to get prepared for a free and fair election. We will stand for a true democracy. So please, my fellow politicians, prepare your candidates and not forget to consider gender, people with disability, and young people during your process. I would like to remind the politicians to avoid misbehaving during their rallies. Do not use abuse language. Be polite and civilized. Why using harsh or abuse your fellow candidate Tanzanian because you want to win? Please, fellow politicians, let us stop abuse language during our campaigns. Use your party manifesto to The president, meanwhile, told the House that his first term of five years in power, his government managed to fight mega corruption, embezzlement of funds within local government, Poor management and sheer waste of public resources, including natural wealth and the bureaucracy in the government offices. The president's speech marks the end of the 11th parliament, which is said to be dissolved after completing its term ahead of the general elections in October 2020. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. 
Uganda's Electoral Commission has banned mass campaign rallies and encouraged aspiring candidates to campaign through the media. The commission says the country's general elections will go ahead in January 2021, but with strict measures to protect voters against the coronavirus. The BBC's Bola Mosuro spoke to the Electoral Commission spokesperson Jotam Taremwa about the electoral program to protect voters from COVID-19. The Electoral Commission of Uganda launched a revised roadmap. We acknowledge that uh, COVID pandemic is still there, but it is a balance between uh, being careful and complying with government of Uganda guidelines on how to avoid COVID and the constitutional right of the people of Uganda to decide on the leaders of their choice. The law commands us to organize elections. So when we added the two, we realized that we could move on with an electoral program, but uh, implement it in a way that ensures that the health of the people and their lives are not at risk of COVID-19. But we shall be in the due course issuing comprehensive and specific guidelines for each electoral activity that we'll be undertaking. Given that these elections are still seven months away or so, um, when do you expect campaigning to start? Well, we have different elections taking place. There are those ones that begin from the last level, which is the village in the case of Uganda, and they go progressively up to the district, up to the region, and eventually you elect representatives to parliament. Those ones begin early, and the parliamentary campaigns will begin sometime in October after the nominations of this year, and then presidential will begin in November. We don't have much time. We have lost three months according to our regional roadmap, so we are trying to really catch up with whatever was lost. So when you're talking about the immediacy of these rallies or the immediacy of these campaigns, rather, um, is it true, according to reports, that whether it's for the local or the village or the, the, the party primary level, that now this all has to be taken online or virtually, whether it's by radio or other media, and that that's how these campaigns will now have to take place. That's how they will now happen. We are looking for alternative means of campaigning uh, which do not involve organizing and conducting mass rallies. Mass media is... Uh, number one on the alternatives. So any other method that can make make a candidate reach the voters will be very helpful. But for now, we agree that we cannot have campaigns as a country uh, using mass rallies like we have done before. We are going to sit down and come up with a, a comprehensive guidelines for each of the activities, nominations, campaigns, and polling. Is social media going to play a, a key part in this, not just other forms of traditional media like the radio and television? Yeah, it, it, social yeah, media it, too? it is one of those modes of how uh, candidates can reach the voters. There are those who say moving it to this arena um, where it's online or where there's the use of uh, TV or radio will benefit those with the means. So may this also be rather disadvantageous to the independent candidates or those who aren't part of the ruling party or the leading opposition who don't have much money? That is not uh, true. Even the independents, those... uh 
in the media houses. But the commission uh, can't just dismiss that fear. What we are going to do is to engage the regulatory authorities in the country, engage uh, the media appropriators and trying to bring them on table so that they provide adequate coverage to those who will be in the competition. And that was uh, Jotham Taremwa, spokesperson for Uganda's Electoral Commission, speaking to the BBC's Bola Mosuro. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective on the coronavirus. Coronavirus is a disease that causes respiratory illness like the flu with symptoms such as a cough, fever, and in more severe cases, difficulty breathing. You can protect yourself by washing your hands frequently, avoiding touching your face, and avoiding close contact one meter or three feet with people who are unwell. If you suspect to have contracted COVID-19, contact the relevant health authorities in your area. Keep listening to Channel Africa. The African perspective will keep you updated on the latest on the coronavirus. At 7.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The impact of a COVID-19 pandemic is staggering with the long-term economic effects of the lockdown nowhere near quantified. To get some insight into how South Africans are coping with the financial impact on their lives and businesses, Consulta surveyed more than 850 South Africans who were part of its online re- research community between April and May this year. The head of client insights at Consulta, Ineka Prinsloo, now joins us on the line to expand a bit more on the survey. Ineka, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lou. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, firstly, briefly explain what was the rationale of this research? We are an independent um, customer experience consultancy in South Africa, but we work across the world. And we have, what you rightly said in the introduction, what we call a consultant panel research online community. It is about 350,000 people that have signed up to co-create with brands and do ongoing research. And we thought at the beginning of the lockdown and as the COVID story unfolded, to really start asking our community to give us some feedback on their experiences. What is their outlook? How are they experiencing the lockdown? So we did the first survey at the beginning of April, really understanding how people felt around government's handling of the pandemic. What did they think about the initial relief that banks were giving them? How would they then look at income continuation and how was how were they affected personally about um, with the, the pandemic? Now we followed it up. And again, as I said, it's a conversation in a community where people sign up to be part of a conversation and co-create with brands. So now we followed up the study from the 30th of April to about the 18th of May. And we said, let's expand on those conversation topics that we saw last time. And this time we focused on social and economic upheaval, people's outlook and concerns as this pandemic unfolds. How do I take control of my financial services? 
We and how do I look at continuation if I am a, a, a person or a consumer or a small business? And then we made a little bit more personal, saying, so what are you going to spend more on and what are you going to anticipate to save? So it's really a continuation of the, of the conversation as the pandemic unfolds. Now, talk us through some of the findings. What stood out for you? I think what really stood out, if we look at the four focus areas around the social and economic upheaval, in the last survey, we asked people how did they experience and what were their views on, on government's handling of the pandemic. And there we saw that people really were quite positive, but we warned that as long as longer this um, pandemic and this lockdown continues, people's uh, um, uh, coping mechanisms are going to be challenged. So one of the things that was really interesting is around the question on how do you think this has impacted my life and my community and my family. And we can see that people, while there was a very positive outlook in the beginning of April, people are back to basics. If we think about a hierarchy of my needs as a person, it's back to basics about safety, security, and continuing my income. And people are very, very concerned about the economy or about unemployment, income, and their health. The second thing is around the evolving needs, but it's still about basics. And people saying to us, I'm not going to travel that much. That means I'm not going to connect to people. And for the first time, the whole theme of loneliness and isolation came through. And thirdly, around the coping mechanisms, as I said earlier, people's fears and the coping mechanism longer that this unusual situation um, continues, we suddenly saw that there's a theme coming through on the uncertainty about scarcity of resources. Is this going to continue and is that going to, to then start culminating in conflict and tension and shortages? So people were extremely positive in the beginning and really supporting where this is going but we see it's about safety and security. I need to be in contact with my network and with my supporting network, but there are concerns around people's coping mechanisms as this pandemic and lockdown continues. Now, what use is such data intended for? Well, the information that we use, um, we do this online community and we use this online community to communicate to brands. We have got a lot of clients in the financial services and we also put the information out there for government and for other stakeholders to really have a sense on the ground how people are viewing the information. So if we think about financial services for, for um, an example, when we did the survey in the beginning um, of April, people said, well, I'm quite con- happy with my bank and certain banks had, had put out relief and, and um, people were quite happy with that. And the perception of the payment holidays and the information sharing and the deferment of payment was very positive. But people also gave us feedback and said, well, I think the one area the banks are failing is around that the fees um, that are being charged are not getting the benefit of the repo cut and give us more relief measures. Now the information comes through is that if we ask people where you're going to take control on your financial services, the first place, 20% of people said is I'm going to go and look at my banking fees. And this is feedback to the banks and it's feedback to financial services saying that when we had this conversation eight weeks ago, people said, I'm not really getting the benefit and now this is the first place where I'm going to look for is where I can actually cut on my banking fees. So start looking at how you can support your customer base where people's discretionary income is under pressure.
Now, Enike, what what sort of uh, response have you gotten from um, the financial services, if any at all? So we have ongoing conversations with them as we have, and, and they do take up the information. So we do the South African Customer Satisfaction Index, and there's an ongoing conversation with the financial services. And they've started to contact us and start asking the questions around what is the risk? Where will people look to save? Where is the pressure points on discretionary income? Something that's very interesting that would start driving the economy and consideration for financial services is where people are saying, I need to supplement my income. I need to look at a second option to actually supplement my income. I'm going to start working online. I'm going to invest because it's a low market. So if you're a financial services provider that has got an app and you are making this available to to masses of people, they can actually start investing. But it's really about the support and changing the way that we look at consumers because we know consumers suddenly now start realizing that I have to save and I have to look for other ways of income. So it does make for a very good conversation with financial services to keep a finger on the pulse of where people are feeling the pressure in this in this pandemic. Now, will you be having a similar follow-up research to, to gauge um, how South Africans feel currently and uh, about developments around the pandemic and, uh, you know, the impact of their lives? You did the first, the initial one in April and then uh, um, a few weeks later, but uh, now currently um, we're we literally going into three months. We're going into three months. I think one of the, the, the interesting ones, and that's a real pressure point that we need and are going to do a follow-up, is on the small business providers. So quite a number of people that answered the survey and engaged with us are small, medium business owners. And if we think about South Africa, our national development program focuses on entrepreneurship. Now, that a plan to 2030, and that's how we wanted to kickstart our economy. But now if we see out of the survey, there's really pressure and a lot of these SMEs, in fact, about 17% of them said, I don't think I'm going to survive if this continues after July. 52% said, I will make a plan. So I think one of the first things that we're going to follow up, or two things for the SMEs, is about the understanding of the enablement and the relief. Enablement is that entrepreneurial spirit and how the economic stimulus should really help to turn around the SMEs and kickstart our economy. But the other thing that's very, very concerning is around the relief that the small businesses need. About 35% said, I applied for relief, which is concerning. Um, And immediately, some have applied to government, some have applied to banks. What we can see is only about 20% have been successful, but the waiting time, the processing time to actually get the relief. And there's really a very short period of time um, that these SMEs can hang on until the middle of July. So I think it's for government and for the stakeholders to form partnerships for the banks that we make sure that by July there is there is uh, uh, solutions on the table for SMEs. And that's going to be our follow-up study. For the retail consumer, it's very much around the priority and the psychic change. It's about the safety and security and I think the notion of the conflict and the potential for tension is something that we will keep our finger on. Enika, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. That's Enika Prinsloo, Head of Client Insights at Consulta, joining us on the line. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, 
Kiambu, Channel Africa, I'm Gabriel Zakaria in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Regularly and thoroughly clean your hands with an alcohol-based hand rub or wash them with soap and water. It's 7.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our several judiciary bodies in SADC and Commonwealth countries have obtained two separate high court injunctions stopping the process to have Malawi Supreme Court of Appeal Chief Justice Andrew Nurenda to go and leave. Nurenda upheld the Constitutional Court ruling on the 3rd of February which nullified the 21st of May 2019 presidential election on ground that it was marred with various irregularities. Malawi's Chief Justice is due to retire next year in December. As George Mangle reports from Blantyre, lawyers in Malawi are due to demonstrate on Wednesday in major cities and towns. The two court injunction orders follow a public notice dated June 12, 2020 from Chief Secretary in the Office of the President and Cabinet, Lloyd Muhara, a judge of the High Court on secondment to the Executive, that the Chief Justice should proceed on leave to clear his days pending retirement and that his replacement would be appointed in due course. Nirenda is due to retire in December 2021. Lilongwe-based High Court Judge Charles Mkandawire issued the first order following an application by Human Rights Defenders Coalition, HRDC, and the Association of Magistrates to restrain President Peter Mtarika and Chief Secretary from taking any further action on the matter pending a judicial review. Hours later, High Court Judge Tom Son Ligoy of Mzuzu Registry granted yet another order with the same reliefs to the Malawi Law Society MLS. Judiciary spokesperson in Malawi is Agnes Patemba. It is not in the ambit of the executive to order the Chief Justice to proceed on leave pending retirement. The issue of leave is uh, clearly provided for in the conditions of service for judicial officers. And uh, it is an internal procedure that we do. So the Chief Justice would apply for his leave and internally would, uh, there is an approval, it's, it's granted, he goes on leave. And now for the executive to come and say, we are directing you to go on leave pending retirement, it doesn't have any basis. They don't have those powers. So the Chief Justice is not proceeding on leave. He's still in office. This matter has not gone down well with various judiciary bodies in the Sadiq region and beyond with the backing of civil and human rights organizations. The bodies feel the judiciary is an independent arm of government, hence no need for the executive to force the Chief Justice to retire. Moses Nkandawire is a human rights and governance expert from the church and society organization. That is uh, uh, an harassment on the individuals, uh, uh, just Nirenda uh, and just Tuya and any other officer in the judiciary. Two, it's also harassment on the office itself. Uh, thirdly, it's also harassment on the institution of judiciary. And we strongly believe that that is a, uh, uh, that has been done outside of the law, um, and and we would want to appreciate and thank our colleagues that have uh, gone uh, into getting an injunction, particularly HLDC, um, and then you have law society, and then you have the judges and the major seats association. So we are joining them in solidarity. 
But the move, which Malawi Law Society has described as aimed at frustrating judicial independence, comes against the background of President Mutarika publicly. And that report by the by George Mohango. It is 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Tanzanian President John Makafuli has vowed to allow free and fair elections as he seeks a second term in October's general election. Human Rights Watch is calling for an investigation into the apparent summary executions and torture of fighters allied to the internationally recognized government in Tripoli. And South Africa's Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 has advised that patients on ventilators may now receive a quarter cost rate as part of the treatment plan. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 7.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The month of June is celebrated as Youth Month in South Africa and focuses on the June 16, 1976 uprising that began in Soweto against Afrikaans as a compulsory medium of instruction in black schools. This year, the theme for Youth Month is Youth Power, Growing South Africa Together in the Period of COVID-19. The theme eliminates the role that young people can play in the revival of the Southern African nation's economy during the COVID-19 pandemic as the country's lockdown restrictions ease in the wake of a COVID-19 pandemic, its impact on the economy will be long-lasting and challenging. To elaborate further on this, the Chief Executive Officer of the management consulting group PricewaterhouseCoopers as PwC Southern Africa, Shirley Mashaba, joins us on the line. Shirley, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning and thank you for having me this morning. Now, how do you think the COVID-19 pandemic will contribute to the rise in youth unemployment in the country? Uh, it's a very good question. And, um, you know, uh, if I can start by saying, you know, um, the pandemic that we have is not necessarily only corona. Youth unemployment is also a pandemic on its own because it's a global uh, problem. Uh, particularly here in South Africa, you would have noticed that um, you know, we will be sitting at some point uh, 50% youth unemployment uh, uh, this year. So uh, it is a serious problem. Um, you know, inequality is at, at the extreme because of the pandemic. You know, people are losing jobs, and among those people is youth as well. Um, you know, if they're not losing jobs, it's about, uh, you know, uh, their salaries being cut. So it is really uh, contributing in, in the poverty and uh, particularly the youth. Now, what has been done by stakeholders to try to turn things around for the youth of this country? 
It's again a good question. It, we can't leave this problem to government. There should be some kind of proactive collaboration between business, government, uh, civil society, and other stakeholders. And what is being done from business is a lot, I must say, because I'm also involved in uh, Business Leaders South Africa and other businesses. But let me start with uh, what we are doing at uh, PwC. We have a lot of uh, uh, programs that are really uh, you know, uh, 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 linked to upskilling uh, the youth. For example, we have the Skills for the Future Foundation. That is the the, the program that is uh, rolled out to more than 750 uh, young people who are employed at PwC. We also have an initiative called the New World New Skills. It's a a global initiative. Uh, We have been privileged in South Africa to partner with UNICEF uh, with the aim of uh, upskilling the young learners, uh, the TVET college learners as well. So I must say we are seeing a lot of uh, you know great strides there because the skills that we 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 provide to those young learners it's not necessarily only you know uh, uh, for 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 the youngsters to get a, a formal education it's really around uh, you know problem solving uh, leadership skills um, um, creativity technology in particular so in addition with the technology space because we know that uh, you know for 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 one to be prepared for the future you have to be uh, uh, having an understanding of technology. We have developed an app called the Digital Fitness uh, Assessment App. It's going to be free until the end of July, uh, you know, acknowledging that uh, June month is a, is a youth month so that it is those young people can assess their skills, technological skills, so that it is they keep on, you know, uh, updating themselves. If they want to take it further, because that is just, for the basic understanding of technology, uh, they can, uh, you know, download some softwares free of charge. They can also get on online courses free of charge so that it is they can be able to enhance their technological skills. I know that uh, there are also other, you know, uh, uh, business organizations that are really uh, doing the same. Uh, there's a lot that is happening for, for making sure that uh, our young people are are empowered uh, uh, with entrepreneurial skills so that it is they are self-employed because we can't wait for the formal employment. And now, just speaking of, uh, you know, the skills that uh, you are, um, you know, offering to young people and, uh, you know, some of the initiatives that uh, um, you have in place for um, young people that you're looking to empower, how critical is it that the youth are empowered with the necessary skills, especially um, you touched on entrepreneurial skills, um, technological skills to, you know, develop and ensure um, that uh, the country moves forward? It is really critical in the sense that, uh, as you know, uh, SMMEs are the heartbeat of the economy. You know, majority of the researches that have been uh, conducted confirm that, uh, you know, majority of jobs, sustainable jobs, will be created from uh, SMMEs. So those skills are meant for making sure that uh, the young people are self-employed. They are not necessarily waiting for formal employment. Uh, you know, because uh, we believe that uh, the formal employment is going to be strained uh, going forward. As as we said, you know, people are losing jobs. So if they're empowered with those skills, they can be able to start their own businesses. I also forgot to indicate to you that uh, we also have a program at PwC. It's part of the uh, enterprise uh, 
uh, you know, ESG, you know, the Enterprise uh, Sustainable Development Program. So we partner with those young people after we train them so that at least they continue to run uh, successful businesses that are profitable and they're also eventually creating sustainable jobs. So it is critical for those uh, skills to be, uh, you know, imparted to the young people. Now, Shirley, do you think the pandemic has presented the world uh, with an opportunity to try and redress some of the challenges that seemed unattainable, um, especially in terms of placing a greater focus on the youth? Yes, the pandemic has has really contributed to that in the sense that, uh, you know, you start with, uh, you know, quality education and the disruptions all over, you can see, particularly here in South Africa. So, uh, you know, the, the, the way forward here is as the economy starts to reopen, you know, you, young people need to be equipped. They need to be ready for the, the, the future uh, world. Uh, you know, you talk about fourth industrial revolution. So if you don't have the technological skills, you become a bit irrelevant. You know, there has been a, a, a research conducted within PwC showing that uh, there, there will be some jobs that are not necessarily going to be relevant in the future. And uh, there must be some, some, some skills that we need to start, uh, you know, uh, uh, building within our, our employees, including the youth. And uh, those skills, if I can just name a few, it will be adaptive uh, thinking, it will be uh, social intelligence, it will be collaborative, uh, virtual collaborat- uh, collaboration, as well as, uh, you know, computational uh, 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 intelligence. So those are the skills that are going to be relevant. And uh, really, if we can make sure that we encourage our young people to focus on that in addition to some formal uh, uh, education so that at least they can be able to uh, be self-employed in the future. Shirley, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. That's Shirley Mashaba, Chief Executive Officer for the Management Consulting Group Price Waterhouse Coopers, Southern Africa, joining us on the line. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. At 7.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our South Africa's premiers in the Eastern Cape, the Western Cape and the Gauteng provinces have warned its citizens against the abuse of alcohol during the lockdown. This after the ban on the sale of alcohol was recently lifted in Alert Level 3. Eastern Cape Premier Oscar Mabuyane has stated that he wants the ban on liquor reinstated as alcohol-related incidents are on the rise. The BBC's Mohammed Ali Faldas report. There was much joy and celebration last Monday when long queues formed from the early hours of the morning after government lifted the restrictions on the sale of alcohol, which was part of its strategy to contain the spread of COVID-19. But while the lockdown, which is now at level 3 down from level 5, was implemented to prepare the country's health services to deal with an anticipated rise in COVID-19 cases, it didn't take long for the increased consumption of alcohol to make an impact in the Western Cape. Dr. Keith Klute is head of the province's health department. 
67% more people were admitted week on week just in one week after the introduction of level three. And that additional admissions have impact on not only overnight beds, it has impact on ward beds, it has impact on patients having to actually have access to ICU and theater as well, which wasn't there the week before. But it's mainly salt trauma, sharp penetrating trauma, which is stab wounds, and then motor vehicle accidents and pedestrian fatalities. In addition to the increase of trauma-related hospital admissions since last week, the country has also seen a dramatic increase in gender-based violence that has included some horrific incidents. All of this has led to several senior ANC members, including the Eastern Cape Premier Oscar Mabuyani, calling for the alcohol ban to be reinstated. Alcohol is a problem. In our command council as a province, we said the problem must go back to national and lobby to really close down this problem of alcohol. We can't be a country that celebrates liquor in the manner in which we have seen people demonstrating, uh, singing. It is very unfortunate that uh, we can even think that uh, we can grow our economy through the alcohol and all those kind of issues. Health Minister Zwelim Kizi, who has crisscrossed the country over the past few weeks as the number of COVID infections and deaths continue to rise dramatically, was a little more diplomatic in his call for people to consider the impact of their actions on a health system that is already buckling under the pressure of the pandemic. We're not forcing anybody. We're simply asking that please be aware that we could have saved more people had we not had to deal with someone who had walked in because of uh, the negligence that arises out of uh, uh, abuse of alcohol. And therefore now we've got uh, facilities that are heavily occupied that could have been available for people who would have had a difficult problem such as a COVID-19 infection. The liquor industry, which is a major contributor to South Africa's tax base, claims to have lost 117,000 jobs during the time it was unable to trade. As rumours circulate about the alcohol ban being reintroduced, long queues have again started to form outside bottle stores as people stock up on their favourite drinks. But government has firmly denied these rumours. That report by the BBC's Mohammed Ali in South Africa. U.S. President Donald Trump has signed an executive order introducing several police reforms while rejecting calls to defund or dismantle the police. His order offers federal grants to improve practices, including creating a database to trace abuses by officers. It comes amid anger over the police killings of African-Americans. President Trump said the order promotes best practices for police departments, including banning chokeholds and the use of co-responders. Take a listen. What's needed now is not more stoking of fear and division. We need to bring law enforcement and communities closer together, not to drive them apart. Under the executive order I'm signing today, we will prioritize federal grants from the Department of Justice to police departments that seek independent credentialing, certifying that they meet high standards, and in fact, in certain cases, the highest standard. That's where they do the best, on the use of force and de-escalation training. For example, many believe that proper training might have prevented the tragic deaths of Antoine Rose and Botham Jean. As part of this new credentialing process, 
Choke calls will be banned, except if an officer's life is at risk. And I will say we've dealt with all of the various departments, and everybody said it's time. We have to do it. Additionally, we're looking at new advanced and powerful, less lethal weapons to help prevent deadly interactions. New devices are being developed all the time, and we're looking at the best of them. And cost is no object, no object. Under this executive order, departments will also need a share of information about credible abuses so that officers with significant issues do not simply move from one police department to the next. That's a problem. And the heads of our police department said, whatever you can do about that, please let us know. We're letting you know. We're doing a lot about it. In addition, my order will direct federal funding to support officers in dealing with homeless individuals and those who have mental illness and substance abuse problems. We will provide more resources for co-responders, such as social workers who can help officers manage these complex encounters. And this is what they've studied and worked on all their lives. They understand how to do it. We're going to get the best of them put in our police departments and working with our police. We will have reform without undermining our many great and extremely talented law enforcement officers. President Obama and Vice President Biden never even tried to fix this during their eight-year period. The reason they didn't try is because they had no idea how to do it. And it is a complex situation. Beyond the steps we are taking today, I am committed to working with Congress on additional measures. Congress has started already, and they'll be having bills coming out of the Senate and possibly out of the House. And hopefully, they'll all get together and they'll come up with a solution that goes even beyond what we're signing today. But this is a big, big step, a step that hasn't been taken before. That's U.S. President Donald Trump. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. It's 7.50 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Lohoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. 
South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has challenged the youth to use the economic crisis that the coronavirus pandemic has caused to seek new opportunities for the future. Young people used Youth Day to express concerns to the president about job insecurity and the declining economy as coronavirus infections and the COVID-19 death toll rise. Ramaphosa was speaking in a virtual panel meeting with a group of young people. We are looking forward to innovation, creativity, new ideas from young people. And we want young people who are going to speak out and step forward. COVID-19 is pregnant with opportunities. So I'm throwing a challenge to young people to begin to see that post-COVID-19 is a new platform. We need to set up different ways of running our economy, of the ownership of our economy, of managing our economy, of even production. The South African Airways Business Rescue Practitioners have finally released a long-awaited rescue plan. The final plan puts the state's bill for settling SAA's current liabilities and funding the restructured airline at 1.55 billion US dollars. The plan was released on Tuesday evening, a day later than the 15th June deadline, the BRPs were granted in their fifth extension since December 2019. This amount includes the 95 million US dollars that was allocated in the February budget to pay off government guaranteed debt and interest over the next three years. Nandika Biekas has more. The rescue plan shows that in the initial phase of the restructured airline, which will gradually come into operation from June, there will only be domestic travel as outlined in Alert Level 3 and 2 of the lockdown regulations. The routes that will be retained are Cape Town, Durban and Port Elizabeth, with six aircraft in its fleet until February 2021. In the beginning, SAA restructured will only retain 1,000 members. This means 3,622 or 78% of SAA's domestic employees will be retrenched. The cost for the workers' voluntary severance package is set at 2.2 billion rand. Their termination of employment will be done through mutual agreement or a Section 189 retrenchment process. The rapid uptake of renewable energy witnessed in Kenya over the last years now hangs in the balance attributable to the Finance Bill 2020. The bill seeks to change the value-added tax status from exempt to standard-rated 14% on liquid petroleum gas inputs or raw materials supplied to manufacture of solar equipments, including deep-cycle sealed batteries, which exclusively use or store solar power. Other areas that will now attract the VAT includes specialized equipment for the development and generation of solar and wind energy, including deep-cycle batteries, which use or store solar power, plastic bag biogas digested biogas, leasing of biogas producing equipment stoves ranges uh, grates and cookers 
Ties between Rwanda and the United Kingdom grew a notch higher as the two countries' financial institutions signed a partnership agreement with an aim of stimulating economic development. The Kigali International Financial Centre has gained a new partner following the signing of a partnership agreement with the CDC Group, the UK's development finance institution and impact investor. The agreement, signed virtually, among other things, provides for KIFC to gain expertise that will help shape a strong legal and regulatory framework from CDC Group's expertise to support the ongoing development of the new International Financial Centre. Angola is set to export 38 crude oil cargoes in August, up from the July schedule. The loadings suggest that the country is largely sticking to its commitments under an OPEC-led supply cut, Based on 38 cargoes, August's daily export rate is as much as 1.23 million barrels per day. Angola's quota for August is 1.25 million barrels per day under the OPEC Plus deal. Indicators, the SAWA on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. The US dollar is trading at 384.58 Nigerian Nara. 11.45 Botswana Pula, 105.30 Kenyan shilling and 18.2 Zambian Gwacha. In BRICS currencies, let's start off. In Brazil, one US dollar will cost you 4 real 16. In Russia, 69 rubles 55. In India, 75 rupees 81. In China, a dollar is changing hands at 7 yuan 8. And in South Africa, it will cost you 17 rand 10. The US dollar is also trading at at 79 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. A look at commodities markets now. Gold, $1,716. Platinum, $803 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $38.04 a barrel. Channel Africa, your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Well, that wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, and the team, thank you for joining us. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Barita with a track titled Ndikela Ikis. Have a great day and be safe.